Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland, reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, and welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Ignat Solzhenitsyn, son of celebrated Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn, author of the Gulag Archipelago. Recognized as one of today's most gifted artists and enjoying an active career as both conductor and pianist, Ignat Solzhenitsyn's lyrical and poignant interpretations have won him critical acclaim throughout the world. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a podcast where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. For more information on CLT's mission and details about upcoming test dates, head to www.cltexam.com slash get started. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation. Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, Anchored fans, I don't think I've ever been so excited uh, for a podcast. This is really, really incredible. We have with us today Ignat Sholtenitsyn. Uh, who, as you you know, is the son of celebrated Russian author Alexander Sholtenitsyn, uh, author of the Gulag Archipelago, who is also featured on the CLT Author Bank. Uh, Ignat is a musician, a composer, a conductor, and has led orchestras all over the United States, including the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, uh, just next door to us here in Annapolis, as well as several in his native Russia, including the Moscow Symphony this is the second time we've had the pleasure of having a professional musician on the Anchored podcast previously, James Kennedy, back in February. Uh, music, of course, being one of the seven liberal arts, uh, it, it is always a delight to have a chance uh, to promote them all, of course. Uh, Mr. Schultz and Ignat, thank you so much for being with us today. Great pleasure to be with you, Jeremy. Uh, so I'd love to give you kind of some context for, for reaching out. I first heard you speak uh, as you were interviewing uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson at the Common Sense Society uh, amazing event down in Florida. And I, I was equally impressed with you as I heard you conversing with Jordan Peterson. And I thought, man, I, I've heard for years now about the Gulag Archipelago. I've heard it referenced. I need to get down to it and actually read the Gulag Archipelago. And then I realized, wow, this is a major life commitment. But I realized there was this abridged version uh, that I could audible, and it was uh, read by you. Uh, and so I, I did that, had a profound impact uh, on me. Uh, I'm wondering, as a first question, what was that like for you uh, doing an audible version of the Gulag Archipelago? Uh, I would imagine you'd read it, of course, several times previously, but was it kind of different reading it out loud? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. A First of all, it's a unique book. It's a book really unlike any other. And the responsibility of delivering that message to, to the audience, to whoever is listening to, to or will be listening to that uh, particular recording on Audible is uh, daunting. <laughs> so here I was able to draw upon my vast experience by now as a as a performer uh as a as a person of the stage to 
to compensate, if you will, for for my, uh, uh, of course, lack of professional training as a as any kind of actor or or reader. Uh, but uh, as a conductor, one speaks in front of audiences uh, quite a lot. And uh, in any case, as a performer, one knows how important <laughs> it is to keep the listener interested and and what works and what doesn't work, broadly speaking. So, uh, but getting back to the content, the content uh, of the Gulag Archipelago, which, as I'm sure most of your listeners will know, is uh, an epic recounting of the Soviet gulag system, the system that sent millions of innocents to work mm. and usually to die in the labor camps. And uh, beyond, of course, the idea of a political expose of the Soviet regime, which it is uh, par excellence and second to none, but of course the reason why the book is ultimately so searing, so important, and ultimately uplifting is because of what it says about both the horrors of what man can do to fellow man, but also about mm. the dignity of spirit that what one can find even in the lowest, uh, most desperate of circumstances and uh, in a measure of good that man can also do to help fellow man mm. in such circumstances. So, those are some of the reasons why it was daunting, challenging, a, a, a privilege, yeah. and a challenge to read that book. Yeah, Ignat, this process of, of winnowing down, uh, I, I believe this abridged version, this audible that you did, is about a third the length uh, of the, the full Gulag archipelago. Is that accurate? That's about right. With that process of doing that, that kind of winnowing process, was that a, a big team effort? Did you have a pretty good idea going into it, uh, what you wanted to feature and what you were going to have to leave out? Uh, this was something that uh, thankfully was already taken care of. And what I mean by that is that many years ago, when my father was not only still living, but still living in the United States during his period of exile from Russia, from the Soviet Union at that time, there was a, a professor from Michigan who contacted uh, Solzhenitsyn, who was himself a renowned and important Solzhenitsyn scholar by the name of Edward Erickson. And Professor Erickson wrote my dad and he said, look, I wonder if based on my students and based on what I know of American students today, mind you, Jeremy, this was uh, third, uh, uh, 40 years ago, almost. So, so, uh, yeah. uh, as you well know, the students, the level of students <laughs> has not increased certainly yeah. their general knowledge in that time. So, but even then he felt, uh, reading the whole book may be too much for them as, as you referenced, whether in terms of time, whether in terms of commitment and so forth. And he said, I think there's room to make a carefully abridged version. And what do you think? And surprisingly to, our family at the time, certainly to my mother, who worked closely with with my father and all such questions to do with editing and to do with his books, he was intrigued by the idea. And he said, you know, maybe so. Not for Russia, but actually for America, for American mm -hmm. readers. That's probably a good idea. So then fast forward, uh, Erickson worked. He, he gave Erickson the green light to give it, a, give it a shot. And so Erickson prepared what he thought was a possible way of abridging it. And then he came uh, to visit my father, stayed with us 
in, in our home for several days, maybe for a week, maybe even a little longer, but for, for some time. Mm-hmm. And he worked with my father. And my father, I think, accepted a lot. And in some cases, he said, well, this should not be cut or vice versa. You can actually even cut more in this chapter without losing the, 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 key, hmm. the key point. Okay. And so in short, uh, Erickson produced and then published this abridgment, which is the only abridgment authorized for this book in English. And it's the only hmm. one that exists in English. And that was the basis for what I read. So it's a published, approved, authorized abridgment uh, that, uh, that I put on the uh, honorable. I want to read here a quote from Dr. Jordan Peterson. Uh, he says that, and, and this is a, one of his many YouTube lectures uh, from the classroom. And in this case, he's actually teaching on the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, he says, the fact that we do not know deep in our bones of the massive deaths that occurred is a testament, and he's referring there to, to the Gulag Archipelago and what your father recounts, is a testament to the absolute rot of our education system. You know, I, I spent myself nearly a decade in the public school system. Uh, we actually focused uh, much, much more extensively on Nazis at the Holocaust. Um, very little. You would almost kind of read it over on uh, what happened uh, under the, the Soviet regime. Um, why is that? Is, is this a, an intentional leaving this out? Um, how could it be that I, I think now probably most high school and college students um, unfortunately, haven't heard of what happened and haven't heard or read the Gulag Archipelago either. It's a remarkable state of affairs, state of affairs. that this grand crime of the 20th century, um, the crimes, really, if you want to say crime or crimes, but that communism mm-hmm. as a whole committed against uh the people it, it enslaved everywhere it went and continues to go today from Russia to China, to Cuba, to all of uh, Eastern and much of Central Europe and et cetera, et cetera. It's, a, it's, it's extraordinary that these crimes and the, are not properly understood, uh, properly um, uh, studied, uh, properly condemned by and large, or or not enough in, in the West. I, I would say that a, a big reason for that is the, uh, the, uh, the superficial appeal of certain communist notions that is very easy for people to understand and very easy for do-gooders to get behind. Hmm. Well, after all, who could be against, if you ask most students or most, uh, or I don't know if most, I, I'm not qualified to say, but many, many students or just relatively thinking people, and unfortunately, sometimes even very thinking people, uh, if you ask them, well, what does communism stand for? What is communism all about? I've, hmm. I've been hearing a lot about communism. What is it? And very often, of course, you'll hear well, it's about equality. Mm-hmm. Everybody should everybody should should have access to anything they need. Mm. Well, that sounds great. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, let's say it's 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 about it's about uh, limiting what um, you know how people can be exploited from from the top down by greedy corporations or evil 
rulers say, well, that I can sign up for that. And, and so those, those handful of theoretically uh, benign principles are, I think, what still gives communism and certainly socialism uh, its appeal. Mm-hmm. And then people sign up and get invested in the idea, and they don't want to look truth in the face. They don't want to look facts in the face. They don't want to know what really happened or is happening. It's always even more embarrassing when it is happening because then it's happening on our watch and and, and we aren't doing anything about it. So Cuba, mm. today, 90 miles or whatever, somebody can correct me, off the coast of, of Florida. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and what's happening in Cuba, broadly speaking, uh, we know it's there. We don't really care. I say mm. we as a, as a as as America as a whole, not really. Uh, you, you you hear it brought up here and there by certain congressmen or certain uh, groups, uh, civil rights groups and, and freedom groups and certainly Cuban exiles. But uh, by and large, uh, we don't really care what's happening there. And and, and uh, what's happening in, in, in Cuba is awful. Hmm. And it's no different, plus or minus local variations, but no different than what communism has been everywhere. So I, I think, Jeremy, my best guess is that this idea that no matter what, uh, communism in theory is so lovely. That's what drives the willing hmm. uh, or, or sometimes perhaps involuntary, in other words, subconscious, turning away from, from its evils. From the actual, actual history. Uh, Ignat, I wonder if we can turn the page here uh, and talk about music for a bit. Um, in my recollection of the Gulag Archipelago, there, there is a good discussion about poetry, uh, the way that your, your father relied on poetry and writing poetry to uh, get through what he went through. Um, I don't recall actually a, a extensive discussion about music. Um, I, I may be, you may be able to correct me on that. Uh, but I'm wondering how how did you discover discover music in the Schultonichen home as a a young boy growing up in Vermont? Uh, what was that like? Well, the reason I think you're absolutely right, but the reason there is not much music in the book, the Gulag Archipelago, is because there wasn't much music in the camps, and the book is really about how things were. You mentioned poetry. That's a side uh, conversation, so to speak. Uh, but 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 it's important to to note that just what you said that poetry was a way for my father to survive as a writer. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know the story, the story in its broadest outline is this: that pencil and paper were forbidden in many mm-hmm. of the camps where he served his sentence. Well, how can a writer write without pencil and paper? He, he, he can't. And somehow, he, he, if, uh, he, my father was given the the the, the inspiration uh, was 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 had the had the flash uh, flash of thought that I could write in verse. I could write poetry, and if I did so, I could memorize it. And if I could memorize mm. it. I don't need to write it down. If I don't need to write it down, they can't catch me. They can't stop me. And that is why uh, one of the great prose writers of the 20th century uh, had turned to poetry to as a means mm. 
really as a as a as a practical means of preserving his ability to 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 stay sane, which for a writer means to keep writing. Hmm. So that's the chief reason why poetry plays uh, an outsized role in the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, with respect to the second part of your question, so growing up, music was in the household, meaning on LPs, which for those of you younger than, well, actually LPs are coming back, but I was going to say for those under, <laughs> you know, under 40, but LPs are, 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 are now very chic again. But uh-huh. the long playing records, those big discs, that used to be the the currency of the recorded of recorded music for many decades. LPs were playing in the house. Uh, classical radio, public radio was playing in the house. Uh, once we once we moved to uh, to the United States, and my parents loved music. They just didn't play it, or were were not, of course, skilled or educated specifically in it. But that was the background, and for whatever reason, my brothers were not particularly taken with it or interested in it, but I was from the youngest age. And that's really how things started is just by listen, showing a great interest in listening to to uh, the, the music that was sounding in a house. And then eventually little by little taking lessons and, 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 and uh, finding my own way. wonder if we can uh, talk about, just what, what it was like. I think every child, I, I can certainly relate to this. You know, dad is everything. Dad, dad's a hero. Uh, you know, my, my, my dad was wounded in Vietnam. Um, he grew up, you know, was an ATF agent as I was growing up. He could not have been a larger than life character. So I think every boy can, can, every man can kind of relate to seeing his dad that way. But with your case, it was a little bit different. Uh, uh, Dr. Marcus Jones, who's a dear friend of mine, he's a professor at the U.S. Naval Academy, uh, a Yale PhD. He put it this way that um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, in the Gulag Archipelago was was the most influential uh, nonfiction book of the entire 20th century. And that arguably your dad was the most influential figure of the 20th century. Uh, what was that like as a young boy? Did it, did it Did you start to process that as kind of the years went by that this isn't just a hero to me, but a hero to the entire free world. Well, everything you said is is true and rings true and 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 sounds right. I would just say that maybe surprisingly, things that we or maybe not surprisingly, but 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 things or circumstances to which we become accustomed from an early age, I think don't surprise us, and we don't find surprising. Hmm. And and I think that there are so many stories across the world and across cultures and across history of such diversity uh, of childhood experience that if only from reading reading writers' memoirs uh, or or just or other people's memoirs and, and and the early chapters about how this person grew up seems amazing to us, but to that to the person describing it, it was it was routine. So mm. I'm only saying that to underline that it it all seemed quite natural for me uh growing up in 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 my family with my particular mother and father and with 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 my particular father and 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 his uh, outsized influence on the world as you as you suggested hmm. uh it just something that that little by little became clear um actually quite early 
and something that my mother, I'm sure, played a very constructive role in sort of explaining to us the context that you may not or you don't yet know this because you don't really know the world outside the home. But this is how things are. Or this is how things look from the outside, perhaps, and so forth. But uh, it wasn't, It wasn't. Uh, as I said, it wasn't somehow strange or unnatural. It was just part of part of our childhood. And my relationship with my father was, I would say, was, was, was both, was first of all, my relationship, I think, like any boy to his father, or one wishes it would be, in other words, a just a loving close relationship and 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 it, as you mentioned the admiration and respect that i certainly had uh for my father from the from the from the beginning uh so so that was all just just normal but then beyond that the 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 uh everything he meant uh, uh to the to 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 the larger world outside of our family and that also i came to know largely through books through his books and so really that's ultimately the way that I understood his uh his his significance was was as like everybody else by reading reading his books. And isn't that appropriate for and I know that's what he would want as a writer for people to read what he wrote and then think about it, debate it, hmm. discuss it and so forth. Uh, Ignat, as, as I understand it, when the Gulag Archipelago came out and, and for a, a few decades, uh, your father was very much in the favor of kind of the mainstream media in the U.S. Uh, but as it became more and more clear that he had uh, deep Christian convictions, uh, they weren't as favorable. Is that accurate? Yes, that's broadly accurate. Yes. Uh, with, with the, with the uh, unfortunate correction that you said for decades, it really was actually three or four years. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Very short period. In other words, on the other hand, there's a little more time in, in that time scheme going back. So just to recap very mm. briefly, it was in 1962, in the very weeks of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, that, again, uh, some of our history uh, students will know and will remember, or, or, or from their books, uh, just about plunged the world into World War Three, yeah. November of 1962, that Khrushchev, who was then the leader of the Soviet Union, decided, made an ill-fated decision for him and, and for his party, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, to publish a little novella or a long short story, if you prefer, yep. by an, an provincial school teacher from Rizan, uh, a, a, a large town or a small city uh, to the east of Moscow uh, that nobody had ever heard of. I mean, they'd heard of Rizan. They'd never heard of this. <laughs> uh, yeah. One day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. Yeah. And this was a tale of, well, one day in the life of an ordinary camp inmate. And the reason Khrushchev thought it might be good to publish it was to underline the difference between big, bad Stalin, uh, from whom Khrushchev was attempting to distance himself, mm. and the benign, progressive, uh, new, updated communism of Khrushchev himself. Of mm -hmm. course... The reality was far, far, the difference between them was far less than uh, 
Khrushchev wanted mm-hmm. to make out. But there, but fair enough. That's a discussion for another day. But um, but there it is. And and so once that uh, one day in life of Ivan Denisovich came out, it it had has been described the impact of a bomb of a bomb going off, a psychological bomb. Nothing was ever the same in Russia because for the first time, mm. the truth about the camps was told officially, so to speak, not by the government, but the government allowed it to be told in this in this instance. And where I'm going with this, for the purposes of your question, is that the West, of course, immediately noticed, mm. and at first was broadly supportive. Uh, I leave aside the the avowed fellow travelers. Uh, the uh, communist believers in the West who, of course, uh, rejected this and, and wanted to have nothing to do with it. But by and large, Western opinion coalesced around Solzhenitsyn and this notion that uh, uh, he should be supported because he's he's speaking the truth in an, in, in an unfree country. And so that support broadly continued through his winning the Nobel Prize in 1970. Nobel Prize for Literature, which was given for that, uh, first and foremost, for that work, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, and uh, continued through the publication in December of 73 of the Gulag Archipelago. Mm. Then events really accelerated so that a few weeks later, on February 12th, 1974, Solzhenitsyn was again arrested, charged with treason for publishing a book like that, slandering uh, the socialist paradise that uh, <laughs> and uh, the very next day forcibly expelled to West Germany. Mm-hmm. This is February of 1974. So you're, you're two at this point. Is that right? Uh, it's exactly right. That's not even a year and a half. And, and, okay. but, but that's, that's, that's right. And now fast forward to June 8th, 1978. When in front of, I think it was reported to be 15,000 people or so. Mm. Uh, Solzhenitsyn gave a memorable and highly consequential address at Harvard Yard for mm. Harvard's 260, whatever it was at that point, somebody can do the math, uh, for Harvard's commencement. And in that speech, he touched upon many, many aspects of not only Soviet corruptions of Soviet society and of the Soviet system, but also what he saw as weaknesses or indeed corruptions of, broadly speaking, the Western system or the American system. Mm. And including, importantly, the notion that Americans or American society as a whole is not, in his view, this is 1978, living up to its own promises, its own declarations uh, in the Declaration of Independence, in the Constitution, in the founding documents. And he speaks with great admiration, of course, about those founding fathers and the founding documents. But he's suggesting, is does America still believe that? And those were some of the many questions he raised and about the life of the spirit and about uh, whether mat- an excess of material goods might be choking people in the West, broadly mm. speaking, obviously with yeah. numerous exceptions, but choking people's ability, choking off people's ability to remember the life of the spirit or to remember that man does not live 
by bread alone, or if mm. he does not live by bread alone, then what are the consequences for uh, living uh, a principled and a good life? Uh, and 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 that that speech was the watershed, mm. after which uh, many of uh, many Western opinion makers and politicians uh, and other uh, what we say today elites, what we call today elites, who reflexively, vaguely supported Solzhenitsyn's cause, said, wait a minute, uh, this guy doesn't sound like someone we we, we actually agree with. Mm, uh, and okay. think of it, we weren't that anti-communist in the first place. <laughs> uh, yeah. you, you know, so so uh, so that honeymoon, if you will, was very short-lived, was, was, was really, uh, as I said, uh, in terms of his time in the West, it was from February of 74 until June of 78. You know, do you feel like you have good clarity into or, or a good sense of kind of his his spiritual journey? Uh, did, did he uh, be, become a, a, a deeper uh, Christian later in his life? Can you speak into that? He himself spoke about that, and he indicated that all the great upheavals in his mind and in his heart and in his spirit and in his soul took place in his early life mm -hmm. between his religious childhood, uh, uh, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for, between his childhood that, that was, that was uh, watched over, if you will, by his by his mother, but also his aunt, uh, uh, who was deeply religious, Russian Orthodox, just traditional Russian Orthodox faith. He went to church, and uh, that was the way he was raised, reared, I should say, and then into the what we would call middle school and high school, when the stifling militant atheist propaganda all around him and especially at his school and at every mm. school yeah. uh, crowded out and defeated that seedling of faith mm. and he became Marxist he became Marxist he believed what he was being told from everywhere and he let, yeah. put aside his his father's faith if you will, as retrograde, as as uh, unworthy of an educated, enlightened, modern person, and et cetera, et cetera. And it was with that Marxist faith <laughs> that he went to war in uh, 1941 mm. when uh, Hitler in invaded the Soviet Union. And it was in the war fighting and right up until February of 45 when he was arrested. Uh, and that's another story, but uh, it was uh, during the war that he began to have some doubts about this Marxist hmm. theory, and especially about the difference between the Marxist theory and how it was being indeed put into life, put into practice in the Soviet Union. And <laughs> especially, go ahead. Uh, we, we, I was going to uh, throw in a question, actually, that we have from the, the Catholic superintendent of, of, our, of the Archdiocese of Boston. But, but uh, no, please finish that, and then uh, we'll, we'll move on there in just a second. Well, just to say that he came into prison a Marxist, and he emerged mm -hmm. from prison a convinced Christian. 
Oh. Orthodox Christian. And this is why, as he, as he says in that book, in the Gulag Archipelago, this is why I say, bless you, prison, mm. says Solzhenitsyn, because in prison, he learned what it means to be a man. In prison, mm. he learned what it means to have charity. In prison, he learned what it means to live for someone else. In prison, he learned that there are things more valuable than hanging on to life at any cost. Mm. Finally, then, to answer your question, from that point, and, and, and the nail in the coffin, if you will, of his of his Marxist uh, uh, mist uh, 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 that enveloped him was the cancer that he developed suddenly mm. and uh, a, a very difficult case still in the camps, which uh, could have and really should have killed him. Yeah, it's it stomach cancer, right? Yes. Yeah. And of course, you know, the expression, there are no atheists in foxholes hmm. and whether there are any atheists dying in a hospital bed is a question that he explores in, in, in fascinating uh, detail and in, in many, from many angles in his great novel, Cancer Ward. Uh, and and I, I guess he leaves that question open. But the point is that it's not surprising, of course, that on our deathbed, uh, our thoughts are focused uh, and become focused. And we and and if we didn't before, we start to uh, really think about life's purpose and specifically our life's purpose and what it is that we are living for and what we leave behind mm-hmm. when we die. So all of that happened up to age 35, 36. And then the rest of his long life until he died at 89, his basic convictions, moral convictions, ethical convictions, uh, political convictions, and and, uh, religious convictions remained Mm. broadly the same. Not to say that there wasn't, of course, some evolution and some enrichment of them, but the, the basic remained the same. You know, we have a question here from uh, Tom Carroll. Tom is the uh, Catholic superintendent for the Archdiocese of Boston. And, and before the interview, I, I've been tweeting about this interview for, for weeks now. And uh, I said, if there's any questions you would like me to ask, Ignat. Uh, and so his question is this. How significant do you believe John Paul II was in the collapse of communism? Uh, Tom's question to me really uh, struck a chord. There, there was one time I, I think I had said that, that nobody did more to bring about the fall of communism than uh, John Paul II, and I was corrected uh, that your father actually may have done more. So that may be a historical debate. Um, how did your father uh, see John Paul II? Did they have a relationship? Uh, and how do, how do you look back historically at the work of John Paul II in bringing about the collapse of the Soviet Union and communism? John Paul II is one of the greatest popes, period. It seems to mm. me, and that's as 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 uh, as we know a, a long and illustrious, and sometimes sometimes dubious, uh, yeah. but uh, an extraordinary uh, history. Uh, but John Paul II is clearly in that in the front rank of those popes, however you wish to to mm. to, to, to slice them, so to speak. So there's that. With respect to communism. His role and, and, and its and its uh, eventual demise, although as we referred earlier, still still not total demise because it continues 
in China and in Cuba and in Vietnam and in Laos. But uh, in his demise as an ideology, John Paul II played a great role. And it was for two, at least for two, for, for two obvious reasons, I think. One is that he emerged from that world. Remember when he was elected in, in 1978, or was it 79? You can correct me. Uh, he was the first non-Italian Pope yeah. in 400 years, give or take. Forgive me if I'm a little off, but in, in many centuries, popes were Italian. Hmm. Popes were partly part of their job. I guess that continues today is as, as worldly rulers, as rulers of a small plot of land, the Vatican, as rulers of and, and possessors of uh, extraordinary um, precious items and artifacts and and uh, and so forth everything that is that makes up the wonder of the Vatican and so forth and this so they were they were worldly princes in addition uh, to to being to being the, of course the head of the church but somehow that really was turned on its head it seems to me I, I, I say this as uh, from the outside not being a Catholic but by this Pope who was so unexpectedly elected from mm. Elected from the communist world, or elected to arise from the communist world, uh, go to Saint Peter's seat and speak to the world the truth about his country, Poland, and of mm -hmm. course more broadly about communism. Uh, uh, John Paul II, as befits any pope, but as as we have seen, uh, is not always the case with 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 a pope uh, had a complete moral clarity hmm. about about good and evil about human yeah. capacity for good and human capacity for evil and old fashioned as those concepts may be they don't seem to go away and we hmm. <laughs> yeah. all that goes away is whether our ability or desire to deal with them head on or, or to shirk uh, from them and to, to shirk our responsibility of coping so those are some of my thoughts on John Paul II. As far as my father, he, uh, I think, uh, certainly was a great admirer of John Paul II, of Karol Vaitila, hmm. as, he, as he is known in... in, in did they in, ever meet? They did meet one time uh, on my father's farewell tour, if you will, of Europe, which he okay. undertook in fall of 93, when he knew uh, the world did not yet know, but he knew he was... Uh, able at last to return to Russia the following spring mm. in 94. And so knowing that he took a tour uh, in the fall of 93 to, to, to make some important speeches and meet certain people in, 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 in Western Europe and to sort of to, to say goodbye, if you will, to Western Europe. And during that tour, he met privately with, uh, with John Paul II, and they had a very respectful, very productive meeting. And I think mm. they saw eye to eye and on many, many things, with the important exception, uh, of course, of the role of Catholicism in Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, my father, as, as most Orthodox, I think, felt that, uh, you know, let, 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 and the very nature of Orthodoxy is, of course, decentralized compared to Catholicism. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think the typical Orthodox position on those matters is let let you know let things be. Uh, in other words, let Catholics be Catholics, let Orthodox be Orthodox. In some ideal world, well, probably in the next world, uh, we can all be united. <laughs> and, we, and and of course, yeah. of course, any normal person kind of wishes for that. But in a practical sense, sometimes more harm than good can come from certainly from a forcible unification. Mm-hmm. And and so they had some limit, some some disagreements, very respectful, uh, but on that issue and and whether the Catholic Church uh, should appropriately mm, uh, proselytize um, in in uh, in the what's called the historically uh, Orthodox territories like Russia. Well, as a Catholic uh, speaking to an Orthodox, thank you for the, just those amazingly kind you know words about john paul ii and i'm actually a convert to catholicism and and uh was the first time i ever ever did intercessory prayer to a saint uh after uh, my wife lost a couple of, of kids in miscarriage and that was kind of a gift he was known for uh but could not uh, agree more with with his role uh you know we always conclude the anchor podcast uh talking about the books that have been most formative uh for our guests but i wanted to kind of nuance this question a bit um what would it ha- have been for your dad was there uh i, I want to go there first and then kind of discover how that also informed your reading and the books that you uh, return to, uh, of course, you know, the top of my mind would be, you know, that he was well-read and, and Tolstoy and, and, and Dostoevsky. Um, was there one book that was the most influential for him? I wouldn't presume to guess. However, we're fortunate that um, he said he said so himself. He, he spoke about this. When he was nine, he read two books that decisively influenced his choice to become a writer. One was the memoirs of a recent Russian political figure, uh, Shulgin, who had been in a very important uh, leader in the Russian Duma, which is Congress, uh, before the before the revolution. And then, of course, was quickly persona non grata under the Bolsheviks after the revolution. And he wrote a fascinating memoir about, well, all the events of those years. The other book was War and Peace. Okay. He's by Tolstoy. And taken together, those two books sealed his choice to be a writer. He knew this is exactly what he wanted. And also sealed his lifelong love and reverence for history. And how wonderful that he was able through the extraordinary vagaries of his life, some of which we touched upon in this discussion, to succeed so magnificently in melding those two loves, his love for history and his love for literature, and to be able to create in his masterpiece, as he himself thought and many others think, the Red Wheel, uh, uh, his his other cathedral, the Gulag Archipelago being one, and critics have called these the two cathedrals of Solzhenitsyn, the red wheel that history of the Russian Revolution brought to life. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and of course, the red wheel, path breaking as it is, owes an unquestioned debt to Tolstoy's War and Peace. So I think that would be the answer that we have from him himself. Mm-hmm. And I, I have reason to yeah to expound on that further 
Wow. Uh, for myself, you know, it's, it's hard to say, uh, it's hard to pick one since but you you let off this discussion this question with Tolstoy and Dostoevsky so I think I'll stay there mm. and we talked about war and peace for Tolstoy and uh I will say demons of Dostoevsky for myself oh okay some the demons sometimes translated by the way as as the devils and sometimes translated as the possessed but mm. I think demons is how I would translate it if I were translating that particular title and it's it's one of the four immortal uh last great novels detective novels you might also say of Dostoevsky Crime and Punishment I should say The Idiot Crime and Punishment The Demons and Brothers Karamazov and and all four of those books as indeed in many other his writings but Dostoevsky uh goes to the heart of I think the most uncomfortable and and subconscious in many ways mm-hmm. questions of 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 who we are and even more discomfortingly what we are capable of because he says he shows through his characters that we are capable again of great good but also of mm-hmm. virtually unlimited evil mm-hmm. and and Reading the demons furthermore reads as a prophecy. It reads absolutely as as a prophecy. It reads as Jeremiah or Isaiah, except that it's just even more relevant. If I in a in a in a in an obvious way, let's let's put it that way. Even more in an obvious way, even more relevant to our to, to today to our life today. Uh, and, and, and to see how the whole Russian uh, this, uh, 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 fall, descent, disintegration into chaos, into murderous, beastly chaos in the 20th century was all foreseen by Dostoevsky. Oh. And the nihilism uh, and the uh, moral, relative, moral relativism taken to an absurd extreme that uh, is such a prominent feature of our life today in the West yeah, uh, was so clearly foreseen by Dostoevsky. So any one of those four books, but maybe especially the, the demons brings these issues. Wow. To okay. And so for me, uh, that that's, as, I guess that's as good an answer as I can come up with. If you <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. paint me into a corner. <laughs> okay. Okay, I, I've read Brothers K, I've read Crime and Punishment, but I, I have not read Demon, so I, I have it written down here. Um, Ignat, you, you bear, uh, tr- I would imagine having your name uh, in this world, you it's a huge weight, it's a huge honor, it's a huge responsibility, uh, but I just want to commend you that, that you bear it very well. Uh, I, I was so impressed again hearing you for the first time at this Common Sense Society event in Florida, and, um, and if you are listening right now, please, 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 uh, if you don't already have Audible, it's, it's a great little app, and you can hear Ignat uh, reading this abridged version of the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, so do that. Order copies of it. Uh, Ignat, any uh, final words here for our audience today? Well, just to say thank you for listening. And uh, to the extent that some of these weighty issues that we've touched upon uh, through through our discussion today is strike strike a chord with people then then 
that's wonderful. And, and we all need to uh, make room in our lives for the intangible and, and for the life of the spirit, however we understand it. And uh, if, if, if our discussion contributes to that in a small way, then uh, I will truly be grateful. You know, thank you. Thank you for being with us. My great pleasure, Jeremy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.